welcome to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Our goal is to exalt the Savior, evangelize the sinner, and encourage the saint through faithful exposition of God's Word. We have been in a series through the book of Nehemiah. We started in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, and we entitled the series Against All Odds. Because after some 70 years of captivity in a place called Babylon, some ragtag Jews had made their way back to Jerusalem. And they were going to rebuild the temple. They were going to restore proper temple worship. And they were going to rebuild the walls that lay in ruin and the gates that had been burned with fire. And the first group that came after millions had gone into captivity, only about 50,000 came back. And under a fellow by the name of Zerubbabel, they rebuilt the temple. And then a fellow by the name of Ezra came in and they reestablished proper temple worship. And then after Ezra had been there some 14 years, a fellow by the name of Nehemiah, who had still been over in Babylon, sensed the call to come back to Jerusalem and help in leading an effort to rebuild all of the broken down walls. And we know that Nehemiah under his leadership, helped them to accomplish an incredible task. They rebuilt the walls in some 52 days, overcoming distraction, discouragement, often feeling defeated and even doubtful at times. But an incredible feat got accomplished through his people and through his leader, Nehemiah, that the walls were finished. This morning, we pick up in Nehemiah chapter 8. And for the next three chapters, Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, you can almost put a parenthesis around those three chapters. Because what has happened up until this point is God was using men to meet the material and physical needs of the people. And truly, we all have material and physical needs. And God was meeting those needs through Nehemiah. But in chapters 8, 9, and 10, they're going to take a time out because in verse, in chapter 11, they're going to begin repopulating the city. They're going to establish a new society, if you will. But before they do that, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, they're going to ensure that they are spiritually healthy. So while the first seven chapters And then chapters 11 through 13 will take care of the material and physical needs of the people. They're going to ensure that their spiritual health is where it should be as well. And in these three chapters, Nehemiah is going to fade into the background. And a familiar man is going to step on the scene again. And it's the man named Ezra. And he is going to reestablish for them that... They need to ensure that they are building everything that they build on the foundation of the book. Nehemiah is an incredible leader. Nehemiah had led the children of Israel here to rebuild this wall in what people know is a miracle of 52 days. Yet he was willing to prefer Ezra and lift Ezra up to be the man to call them to spiritual renewal and revival. And Nehemiah 
chapter 11, they're going to get back to doing what they need to do. But Ezra is going to say to them that before you can get busy in chapter 11, repopulating and having a decent society and a decent culture, you better get the book out. Because this needs to become the foundation upon which you build going forward. Because if there's going to be any sense of godliness about these people, they better start with the book. If you individually are going to be living the kind of life that God desires for you to live, you better start with the book. If you're going to be a parent that leads your family in the way you need to be leading your family, you better start with the book. If we're going to be a church that makes a difference for the cause of Christ, we better start with the book because it is the book upon which we will build a foundation. I remember years ago, Stacy and I were eating lunch at a Fuddruckers. And I wasn't eavesdropping on the two men that were sitting behind us in the booth behind us, but they were just talking loud enough that I could hear. And they were talking about starting a church and it perked my ears. And they likened the building of the church that they wanted to start to the construction and the building of an automobile. And here's what, here's what they said. I'll never forget this. We don't need the Bible to be on the outside of the car. It needs to be in the car. It just doesn't need to be in the front seat. We need to put the Bible in the back seat. And we'll have it in the car, but it'll be in the back seat. You know where that church is that they started? It ain't. You know where those two fellows are right now? If they're even saved, they're way out of fellowship with the Lord. Because when you don't base your life on the book, you are headed for disaster. You better decide what the authority in your life is going to be. I've already decided that for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that the authority in my life is going to be the book. Now, we can, we, we, we can let our feelings be the authority. And when we let our feelings be the authority in our lives, we become fickle. Because if our feelings become our authority, here's what happens. We call sin, sin, because the Bible calls it sin. But then when one of our kids get caught up in that sin, we change what we believe because our feelings for our children are so strong. Let me try it over here. <laughs> because here's what we'll do. We'll either change our beliefs to match our behavior, or you'll change your behavior to match your beliefs. And here's what'll happen. You'll go, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but I'm not sure, you're not sure what. If you started out with, I believe that's what the Bible says, but can't come in that sentence as the next word. We're gonna find out that Ezra is going to be a man that's just gonna stand on the book. 
Some have said bar the book. Some have said ban the book. Some have said burn the book. But the people of God here in Ezra's day, listen to what they said. And here's the title of our message today. Can you imagine a bunch of people getting together and looking at a preacher by the name of Ezra? And they said, Ezra, bring the book. Can you imagine the hairs on the back of his neck standing up? Bring the book. Let's stand together this morning and begin reading in Ezra chapter eight. Now, let me say this. These folks that are shouting to Ezra, bring the book. We know their history. They hadn't always got it right. Can any of us identify with them? They ain't always got it right. They're getting ready to have a worship service, man. And Ezra's going to give them the book. And they love the book, okay? But we know the rest of the story. They don't always get it right after this either. So don't put so much pressure on yourself. You've messed it up in the days gone by, amen? Now, I'm in a Baptist church and I know some of y'all. We've messed it up in days gone by, amen? We probably will mess it up again in the days down the road. But for today, they just say, give me the book. Because it's the book that will never return void. Let's begin to read. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. <clears throat> and all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to do what? To bring the book, the law of Moses, which the Lord commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and all those that could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive under the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for him for, the, for that purpose. And beside him stood all of those men. You know, my voice gave me a hard time, so I don't want to take the time to read all that. Verse five. <laughs> and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. I mean, think about this. Ezra opened the book. He's standing above all the people on a pulpit of wood. And when he opened it, all the people did what? It's one of the reasons we honor the public reading of the word of God. We've got example in the word of God that when we have public reading of the word, we stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen. With lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Heavenly Father, as we walk through this this morning, I pray you would teach us what it is you would need us to know I pray, God, there'd be conviction today that we would be people of the book. And may you, Heavenly Father, do the work in the hearts of your people today. 
Where there is salvation, I pray, Lord, you would give it. Lord, where there is discouragement, Lord, I pray you would be their encouragement. And Lord, where there are folks that need to take a stand on the book, I pray, God, you'd strengthen them to take a stand. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Several years ago, there was an article written in a popular Christian magazine, and it startled some of the readers. These were people that had graduated high school that were going into a freshman, freshman year of college, and they were going into a Christian school. And they gave them a entrance exam, a Bible literacy entrance exam. And the questions were not that difficult. Where was Jesus born? What is the oldest of the four written gospels? Name the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Pretty simple questions for those that would be freshmen going into a Christian university. The average score on the exam was 10%. The highest score on the exam was 34%. Now those scores in no way are a reflection of the intellectual capabilities of those college freshmen, but they do point to a real crisis of biblical literacy in our homes and in our churches. And we love to shout when the preacher says we're going to stand on the book. The problem is many of us just don't know what the book says. And we're doing everything that we can in a culture that has gone crazy to take kids from the smallest of the small all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, Young adults, middle age, prime timers, we're doing everything we can do to teach these children the truth of the Word of God. Because in some classrooms, they're going to be taught things that are contrary to the Word of God. This happens every year. It's happened the last two years. We, we have a curriculum called Answers in Genesis that our children go through. And man, they, they're, they're learning about some apologetics. And they're learning about what the Bible says about creation. And I had a school teacher that said, you know, one of your students came into my class and said that the earth wasn't but about 6,000 years old. And you know, science disproves that. I said, oh, we don't talk about science now. But our children are learning the story of creation from a biblical point of view so that they can defend what they believe. Now, we also want to teach them that they don't have to be difficult about it. <laughs> 6,000, brother. Where'd you get this millions and millions of years, right? We're teaching the word of God because there is great illiteracy of the word of God. And the only people that we have to blame for that is the people that we look at in the mirror every single day. You can't bring your children here for two hours a week and expect us to knock everything out of them that's been poured into them through the whole week. 
Now we're going to do everything we can. But we need some moms and dads to pick up the book. I didn't say that in the first service. Y'all must be more evil than they are in the first service. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't make sure you paying attention. All right, let me get into the outline real quick. Number one, the desire for the word. There's going to be corporate revival. I mean, revival is about to break out here. And it's going to break out because they made the word preeminent. And they had a desire for the word. Notice in verse one, watch this. And all the people gathered themselves together. Did you see that? How many of them? Could you imagine if everybody on our roll showed up one Sunday? They all showed up on this particular day. It's the first day of the seventh month and there's some, there's some significance to that date. But they all showed up. They had a deep desire for the word of God and they've gathered there before the water gate and they make their request known to, to Ezra. Notice their plea from the streets. They, they, they've gathered their, themselves together in the streets and they, they have a plea that they make to Ezra. And their plea is this, bring the book of the law of Moses. When a group of people have united themselves together and they have, they have a desire to be under the authority of the word of God, that atmosphere is ripe for revival. Yes, they'd made bad decisions in days gone by. Yes, they're going to mess it up in days ahead. But on this day, they decided the, the word of God is going to be our God. Now, I understand they only had the first five books, the books of Moses, but I think we can make application today that we have the full canon of the word of God and we too must base everything we believe on the word of God. They, they, they come together under one authority now. And I'm grateful to pastor a church that echoes the same thing that these people said in, in, in Nehemiah's day when they opened their mouths to Ezra and said, bring the book. I love to hear people who love the book. I imagine old Ezra, man. Can you imagine being a preacher and the people shouting you going, bring the book, preacher, bring the book. I mentioned the hair on the back of his neck was just standing up, ready to go. There's the plea from the streets, bring the book. But then there's the preaching of the scribe. Oh, Ezra, why did they choose Ezra? Ezra was an incredible man of God. And remember I said, Nehemiah preferred Ezra to take leadership here. Why would that have been? We can go back to Ezra chapter seven. I think we have this on the screen. In verse 10, it says, Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Look at those next four words. And to do it. And to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Here's the kind of man Ezra was. And it's the kind of men we ought to be. It's the kind of women we should be. He studied the word. How are you going to know what's in the word if you don't ever open it up? And if Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night is all you're getting, you ain't getting much. I shouldn't have said that. You ain't getting enough. How about that? 
He ain't enough. You got to get in the book. He studied the book. He submitted to the book. He didn't just study it. He did what it said. And then he shared the book. Some said he learned the word. He loved the word. And then he lectured to others about the word. And this was a man that had the respect of the people. Because he had the respect of the people, they said, Ezra, bring the book. We know you ain't perfect. I'll be honest with you. I do get an opportunity from time to time to preach in other places, but I'll say this on the live stream. I don't preach nowhere like this. This is the sweetest, most loving, growing, serving, going church I've ever been in in my life. And I love to stand here and just preach the book. Why? Because I know you love the book. I know you want me to just rightly divide the book and you have loved me. You have loved my family through these years and and we could never say thank you enough for how you have loved on us. And we just love the fact that we're gonna be here at Mount Pisgah Baptist Church, a people of the book. So Ezra gets a chance to stand up. There's the plea from the streets. There's the preaching from this scribe, but then there's the priority of this season. I'll give you this real quickly. We can get bogged down here, but I don't want to get bogged down. But look at the last part of verse two. All of this happened upon the first day of the seventh month. That would have been a significant day in the life of the Jews. It would have been the beginning of the most sacred month of the year would have marked the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets, which was on that first day. On the 10th day, probably something familiar to you would have been the Day of Atonement, followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, which began on the 15th day and ran for seven days. I won't take time to read this, but if you go back to Ezra chapter three, you can also read that this was also the day that they began to burn burnt offerings unto the Lord again. While the foundation of the temple had not been set. They took that first day of the seventh month. There was a significance to that day. And they gathered themselves together again. And they desired to hear the word. Some would have said this day would have been a day of celebration, would have been a a day of leisure because it would have been their civil new year. And instead of taking a day of leisure, They went to the pastor and said, give us the book. We don't want to sit around and just put our feet up for the day. We want to hear the word. We don't want to just check today off as another celebration. We want to hear the word. And they desired to hear the word. There's the plea from the streets, the preaching from the scribe, the priority of the season. But then notice with me the passion for the scriptures. Look at verse three again. And he read therein before the street, that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday. For several hours, Ezra stood to read the word. As I was studying through this, I thought, I wonder what would happen at Mount Pisgah. If we said, all right, we got service starting at eight o'clock in the morning. And at eight o'clock in the morning, I got up and I read the word until noon. 
wonder what our attendants would do the following Sunday. That's what he did. He just got up and read for hours. Now, our attention spans today, they are so short. And I am not preaching at you right now. I am with you. Ask my wife. My attention span is short. One of the things that has caused our attention spans to become so short are those little devices in our pockets. The average American unlocks and scrolls his or her phone, unlocks the phone and begins to scroll 96 times a day. That's once every 10 to 12 minutes. However, we reach for our phones and look at them. Whether we're looking at the time, whether we look to see if we've gotten a message, we reach and look for our phone 2,617 times a day. Some of you are looking at it now. <laughs> you Googling that to see if that's true. Now, I, as a pastor, fully understand that the heart and the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. And I want to say to my church family here this morning, I don't feel the pressure that a lot of my peers do. A lot of my peers have prayed and studied and sought God for what to preach on a Sunday. They stand up to preach on a Sunday and they feel so rushed that if they don't get the church out and adjourned by noon, that somehow they're going to feel some pressure from their people. And it's the most important hour of the, of the week that we've gathered together around the Word of God. And I'm grateful that I don't feel that pressure. Some of you say, well, maybe you should. <laughs> well, I, I just don't feel that pressure that we got to get out by a certain time. I understand we've got, th but listen, we'll go to a ball game and celebrate if it goes into overtime, if it's our team that scored, descended into overtime. And we'll sit, how long will we sit and watch a football game? Three, three and a half hours, something like that. Some of us will get up, listen, and it's coming. We'll get up on Saturday morning. And man, if all this conference stuff goes crazy, we might can start watching football over here, good football at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> we'll sit and watch it. From noon, and there's a 3.30 game. So we've got a noon game, 3.30 game, 7 o'clock game, 7.30. And then if you can stay up late enough, there's some West Coast football, and we can sit how long? As long as there's enough chicken dip <laughs> and Pepsi Cola, we can sit all day long, right? And yet, across this country, there are folks that sit inside churches. It's got to hurry up so they can beat 
whoever to the buffet. I praise God for this church. That we don't feel the pressure to get out. You know what I feel the pressure to do? Get in. I want to get in on what God's doing. Yes, we want to be cognizant of the time. Yes. But we don't feel the pressure to get out. We feel the pressure to get in. Notice this. Verse three. The last part of verse three says, all the people were what? Attentive to the book of the law. Not only were they all there, they're all leaned in, paying attention. Now you talk about a miracle. I watch people clip their fingernails during preaching. (laughs) Clean out their pocketbooks. But I'll move on. If we're going to have personal revival and experience a move of God in our own life, experience a move of God inside of our families and experience a move of God in our churches. The best way to see that happens is to be attentive to the word. There's their desire for the word. There's the plea in the streets, the preaching of the scribe, the priority of the season, the passion for the scriptures. But then there was a pulpit on the stage. Verse four, and Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. Now you can get real legalistic about this. And your pastor is not legalistic about this. This is the only word, only time you'll find the word pulpit found in all of scripture. And it's really more of a tower that he would stand on. But here's the significance of this. He would stand up on an elevated platform so that he could be heard. There's just practical sense in that, right? He would stand on an elevated platform so that he could be heard. But then he had a pulpit that would be... some, some suggest he had a lectern. Some say maybe he didn't, but there was something that the word of God that was to be preeminent would sit upon because this was to be the focus. And it stood above everything else. And that's the kind of church I want us to be is that the word of God would stand above everything else that our personal opinions really may matter to us, but if they're contrary to the word of God, they're out of line with God himself. So we must, as a people, make the book preeminent. So there's the, the desire for the word. But then notice with me, secondly, the delight in their worship. When Ezra opened up the book, The people stood to their feet. And I want you to notice a couple of things about their worship. Look at verse six. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen. With lifting up their hands, bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They worshiped with vitality with vitality. Notice with me a couple of things. Ezra is reading the book and all the people, did you see that? All the people answered what? Twice. 
Amen, amen. <laughs> there was some vitality to their worship. I don't know about you, but you get to singing about redemption has a name. Victory has a name. The word has a name. You get to talking about, I got saved. I'm undone by the mercies of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. How could I want more? When I began to read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When I began to read about the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when I began to read about how they made their way to the tomb early that first morning, uh, that, that first day of the week, and, and the, they looked inside and the angel said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's alive. I just begin to think, amen, amen, and amen. And I promise you, some of you shout amen. Some of you shout hallelujah. Some of you sit there and you ain't quite sure what to do sometimes. I promise you, it won't break your face to just go, amen. <laughs> amen. Might even bring a smile to your face. Amen. It's okay. There was some vitality in their worship. I love that about this place, man. There's some vitality in your worship. But listen, worship ain't about you. I was in a church one time. and Oh boy, laid out prostrate in the altar, Brother Jordan. Just laid out prostrate in the altar. Screaming to the top of his lungs. I just thought, what in the world? Screaming, screaming. And the pastor... I was sitting about right there where you are. He said, come here, brother. Pray with this old boy. And I thought, okay. <laughs> so I got down real close to his ear. I said, hey, brother, I want to tell you a couple things. Number one, God's not hard of hearing. <laughs> Number two, you're bringing attention to yourself. And we're supposed to be bringing attention to somebody else in here. So I'm going to pray with you. And I'm going to pray God meet whatever needs you got. But there is a tendency where there's a vitality of worship to make it about ourselves. But it should always be about the object of our worship. Oh, you can have worship full of vitality and it still be about Jesus. Amen? Well, it was... It was Worship filled with vitality, but it was also worship that was visible. It was visible worship. Notice what they did. They what? They lifted their hands. They bowed their heads. They lifted holy hands. Now, let me just deal with this real fast and we'll get out of here. Many of you, I find myself doing this from time to time. When I'm worshiping, man, I'll just lift a hand. Sometimes I'll lift two hands. And it goes back to years ago. Do you remember that there was some debates about whether or not we should clap in church? Y'all remember those days? Some people thought you should clap. Some people thought you shouldn't clap. It was irreverent to clap. And the pastors were having dual personality days because they didn't know whether they should clap or not clap. They tried to find where their givers were. Are, there, are the givers clapping? Go ahead. 
And you just kind of do a little golf clap, right? But we have some folks that worship by raising of holy hands. I mean, there's scriptural, there's scriptural uh, precedent for that, yes. Psalm 134 and verse two says, lift your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. But I understand some people worship in a visible way. Others do not. There's not a right way and a wrong way. Don't feel like because you don't have a hand in the air that somebody else is more in touch with God than you are because your hand ain't in the air. So here's what we're gonna do around here. The hand raisers, you don't look down on the non-hand raisers. And the non-hand raisers, you don't look down on the hand raisers. And if you wanna raise a hand, raise a holy hand. It was worship that was visible. They had just made a statement to Ezra. Bring the book. And when he brought the book, worship broke out. And they started shouting amen. They started raising holy hands. But look what they did with their heads. Because <laughs> they knew how good he was and how wretched they are that they would bow before a holy God. One friend of mine said it this way. If you'd have been in that service that day and you were blind, you would have known that a worship service broke out. Because while you couldn't have seen the raised hands, you could have heard the hallelujah chorus. If you'd have been deaf in that service that day, you could have worshiped. Because you may not have heard the hallelujah chorus, but you'd have seen the hands that were raised and the heads that were bowed. So when the book is preached, it ought to move us. They said, amen. Amen. Not to Ezra's opinion, just like you don't say amen to my opinion, but the truth of the book. Amen. But here's the deal, guys. How can we stand on the book with confidence if we're not spending time in the book? We got to know what it says if we're going to stand on it with confidence or we'll be blown about by every wind of doctrine. Is it time for some parents to get in an altar and say, man, we got to get in the book. We got to be in the book. Individually, maybe it's time to find a spot in an altar and say, I got to get in the book. People say this to me all the time. Pastor, I need to get in the book. I need to get in the Bible. Where would I start? I tell everybody, if you're trying to get started, open up to John chapter one and verse one and just start reading. And if you finish the book of John, go back and read it again. There's enough in there that you and I have missed that uh, will keep us busy for a long time. But we gotta get in the book so that we can stand. But also because we get in the book, we experience personal family, and corporate revival. Bring me the book. Just stand to your feet.
If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, we want you to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. You don't know where you're going to spend eternity. Maybe it's time to just come forward, put your hand in mine and say, Pastor, I need to be saved. Could be that this is the church God would have you to yoke up with. Could be you need to get your baptism on the right side of your conversion. Could be you need to just say, Lord, I know as I look over my past days, I've messed it up. And I know, Lord, I'll not be perfect from here forward. But I desire to be a person of the book. Help me, Heavenly Father, to be faithful to be in the Word on a regular basis this week. Whatsoever He says unto you, just do it. You come as we sing. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. If you'd like additional information, please visit mtpisgah.cc.